I am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are happy to have Dr. Ify Stitt, a board-certified OBGYN dedicated to women's health with special interests in genetics and education. She works in Annapolis, Maryland, and is affiliated with Luminous Health, where she serves as the medical director for her group. Dr. Stitt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, hi, TJ. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, no, our pleasure. So uh, getting to know you over the last uh, probably two years or so a little bit, um, you know, you just have a very interesting story and, you know, you're very passionate around genetics and risk assessment. And I just thought you'd be a great person to come on and, uh, you know, tell people your journey and how you got uh, into your passion to um, genetic risk assessment in general. So, you know, first off, um, how did you get, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background and how you, um, you know, became an OBGYN and then really transitioned into having genetics kind of be an everyday component of your practice. Sure. Um, and again, thanks so much for having me um, today. I'm so excited to talk about this. You know, um, I went to med school in Nashville. I went to Meharry Medical College, graduated with honors, and I went on to do my residency at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, where I was proud to serve my country for, you know, for seven years, um, three years after I completed my residency. Um, I was stationed in Fort Benning as part of my active duty service. And um, shortly after completing my servitude, I started in a private practice along with my husband, which was really quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of how I got into this. I remember once upon a, you know, I had a, a patient, um, and, you know, once we graduate from, um, from residency, you just kind of feel like you're on top of the world and you're the best, you know, you're the smartest doctor you'll ever be. And, you know, you're going to make sure that you don't make any of the mistakes that any of the older docs ever made. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, you know, learning about in residency was, you know, the um, learning about hereditary cancer risk assessment. So just like every new grad, I thought, you know what, I don't make that mistake. I'm making sure that I'm identifying my patients who are at risk. And, you know, one of um, somebody brought it to my attention. You know, I had a patient who I had been following. She had a terrible, terrible OB history, morbidly obese, lots of medical problems. I followed her throughout her pregnancy, saw her so frequently. And um, at her postpartum visit, once we I started doing risk assessment more frequently, my medical assistant actually brought it to my attention and said, hey, you know, Dr. Stitt, this patient has a really strong family history of cancer. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that can't be. I've been following her for years. I would never have missed this. And so, you know, of course we, we look at her family history. Her mom had breast cancer in her thirties. Her maternal aunt had breast cancer in her thirties. She had a cousin um, with ovarian cancer and a grandmother with um, also with ovarian cancer and as well as a, an uncle with prostate cancer. So of course, you know, I'm like, uh-oh, yeah, what did I do? Flags. I was like, those are all sorts of red flags. <laughs> and don't you know, we tested her she was a BRCA2 carrier. Wow. But here's the kicker. Her mom already knew she was a BRCA2 carrier. The aunt already knew she was mm. a BRCA2 carrier. They had been evaluated when they were diagnosed with their cancers and they were tested and their doctors told them, but nobody ever told them to share with the family. Yeah. And that really kind of, that was just my foray. And I dove in head first. And I've been ever, I've been passionate about it ever since. Yeah, no, that's great. And, 
Uh, you know, cascade testing uh, leaves a lot to be desired in our country and really around the world, uh, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, not shocking to me, I guess, that, you, you know, you were uh, it, was, it was put in front of your face. But uh, it was good, I think, for many patients downstream because it, uh, you know, catapulted you into this. So how did you, you know, build up your education and, and think through how you want to uh, proceed with doing this more in a regimented manner? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I said, okay, well, when I kind of went back and reassessed, I'm like, how did I miss this? And actually, she wrote it on her on her um, intake form. So she when she was a new patient, she wrote about her family history and wrote family history of breast cancer. But I think I like many other physicians, we get so busy. And you mm -hmm. know, I think I got so bogged down into her other medical history, her other obstetrical history, I overlooked it. So at that point, I decided, I said, okay, I, you know, kind of got with, um, you know, the representative who was kind of serving me in terms of introducing us into cancer genetics. I, I decided I'm like, I need to learn more about this and I need to learn how I need to figure out how a process for how I do this on a regular basis. So I reached out to, you know, um, my local at the time, you know, this is back in the 20 teens, early 20 mm -hmm. teens to my myriad um, executive, because that's who was, you know, doing it. And I said, Hey, yeah. teach me. And um, the first thing we did was we, you know, created, you know, we had, we created a form that we utilized in addition to our, um, our intake form, our new patient forms. And we just started a process, you know, it was just my husband and I, and we started a process to make sure that we identified these patients on a routine basis. Yeah, no, that's great. And have you, um, you know, kind of brought other physicians in your practice, you know, being a medical director now and everything into uh, the realization that this just should be part of everyday care? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's great because I've had the opportunity, you know, when I, my initial practice in Georgia was just a two-man group, and now I'm medical director of a 20-plus, you know, man group, mm -hmm. uh, or man-woman group, but, uh, you know, we, it, and so it's a different process, you know, the process that I implemented in my small practice in Georgia is completely different than the process that we implemented in my practice now in Annapolis. And, you know, you, and that's what's so, you know, important to figure out not everything, you know, it's not a one size fits all type process, you have to figure it out. And even when I joined my group, I joined my group as a, you know, new doc, and there were already plenty of established folks who said, oh, no, I don't have time for this. I only have 15, 20 minutes to see my patients. There's no way I can incorporate this in my practice. And it was not easy. But, you know, I started along with a couple other people who were who felt as passionate and we started doing it little by little. And, you know, I guess like a virus, it spread through the practice and everybody, you know, kind of saw the, the benefits of identifying these patients and testing them and treating them accordingly. And now my entire practice does it. But, you know, it was a process. And that's what's so important. You have to create a process. Yeah. And yeah, could you uh, do a little deeper dive into, you know, like walk through how a patient comes in and, and how they kind of enter into that process or how it gets to you or how you make those kind of decisions? Yeah. And that's one of the things that's, you know, evolved. And that's the beauty of this, you know, process is not our process when I joined the practice back in 2013 is not our same process in 2022. Um, you know, when we first started, everything was on paper, you know, and so what we I brought some of what I did in mm -hmm. Georgia, we had a form that we just handed to the patients. Um, and, you know, different ways of doing it for us, you know, when I started in this new group, because I needed to kind of start a little bit easy with these folks, I started it with just the well woman. And, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that every well woman um, that I encountered 
filled out a hereditary cancer assessment form. And, you know, where we asked about, you know, just some of the, the red flags, the things that we know, similar to what I mentioned mm -hmm. about my patient, you know, asking them about their family history. That and they process, do this in the waiting room? Yeah. And they sit, actually, sometimes they do it in the waiting room. Sometimes mm -hmm. they do it actually in the exam room because mm -hmm. it's nice because it gives them something to do, yeah. you know, because, you know, as you know, patients are always waiting for us. It's never, <laughs> we're never always, we're just running on Never time. for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not for you, of course, present company excluded. But, um, but yeah, you know, this is something that gives them something to do, you know, rather than doing a crossword puzzle. But what's mm -hmm. beautiful is now that's evolved now into a QR code everybody has a cell phone. And so what we do is, you know, um, my medical assistants um, now have a pa the patient scan a QR code and, you know, fill out the forms. But part of the process of that was I couldn't always be the one who was getting the form. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we kind of, you know, got buy-in from our medical assistants. They're often the ones that are spending a lot of the intake time with the patient. So we, part of our education was not just educating our patients, but also educating our ancillary staff mm -hmm. and making sure that they are able to identify these patients just as well as we are. So on the odd chance that I forget or I miss something because yeah. I'm having very as out day, <laughs> they're going to catch me. Yeah. But it's kind of getting the whole yeah, team together to make sure that we do the best job of taking care to our of our patients. Yeah, for sure. And how do those results then uh, come? Do they come back to you or do they uh, are they screened by the medical assistants? So what's great now is the with the new version that were the updated form. So in the olden days, I would get the, you know, the pink form mm. is what we called it. We made it pink to make sure that it stood out from all the other white forms that we had. And so if it was, you know, we taught the medical assistants to be able to interpret it, but either way, they put it on my desk along with the new patient paperwork. Nowadays, um, with the new with the advent of this QR code, it's great that, you know, that Mary has you scan the, the, the code and um, the patient, if they meet criteria, the patient knows. And then yeah. you have, it's great. You have a nice little conversation. So there's so many different ways of doing it. It's all about identifying a process that works mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. And then do you tend to uh, order the testing in office? I mean, do you do blood, saliva? What's, what do you prefer? Yeah. We're really lucky that we have a phlebotomist in-house, but we didn't always, mm -hmm. you know, I have, uh, my practice has four different locations. So we had two locations that had phlebotomists and two that did not. So at one point we did do saliva and the salivary samples were just as efficacious as the blood samples. But now we, all of our offices have phlebotomists. So it's wonderful. I, once I identify a patient, I have a quick three to five minute conversation with them about their risk and, mm -hmm. you know, what this could do and how it could help us. And I mean, I would say invariably they say, yep, yeah, I want to have this test done. And they go right around the right down the hall and get their blood work done. Yeah, that's great. And then, um, you know, when results come back, if they come back positive, um, how do you, I mean, how do you handle results in general? I should start. Yeah. But, yeah. And that's a great question. You know, and I often tell folks, I'm like, you know, in the day and age where, you know, it's, you know, you, as an OBGYN, honestly, you know, we want to make sure that we, you know, we have such liability in our, in our field. And we want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence of taking care of our patients. So regardless of the result, I communicate with the patients. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're completely free and clear and there's absolutely nothing, you know, they're completely essentially the equivalent of a 
you know, normal average risk individual, um, then I may just send them a, a message, you know, telephone message, you know, through, you know, we have a, you know, patient portal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I make sure I po- I document a note that when I see them for their next annual, I, you know, bring, you know, we just kind of bring it up and say, just to make sure you got my message, we're all good. However, those patients that might be in between that might have a slightly elevated risk, you know, they're high risk negatives, as we call them, or they're positive. Those folks either get a telemedicine visit in person or an in-person visit where we map out what we're going to do differently. Those that are positives, based on what the positivity is, I talk about what your the, um, the increased cancer risk is, identify what needs to be done. And even those high-risk negatives, because those take a little bit more of nuance, you know, there's, you know, there's Mm -hmm. little different things that you have to do for those individuals. So we sit down and we have, you know, a conversation about it. And now with telemedicine, it's so much easier, you know, patients can sit in their cars and have, you know, 15, 20 minute conversation with you and come up with a game plan. And then it gets readdressed on an annual basis. Yeah. Yeah. And have you built out a kind of a local network of um, you know, specialists that can also help, uh, you know, if you find some, uh, something maybe that puts someone at a higher risk for colorectal cancer, for instance. Absolutely. And I think that's part of, you know, that's part of the, the growing pains. You have to mm-hmm. find folks that are also going to work with you. And, um, I do, I have a breast team. Um, you know, we have a high risk breast assessment program that I often refer my breast folks to our chief mm-hmm. oncologists are really solid. So mm-hmm. you know, those that are increased risk, you know, Lynch, um, you know, um, BRIP, for example, RAD51s, ovarian cancer risk. And then certainly I have a colorectal. So I have different network, you know, I've mm-hmm. definitely built up that circle of care, as we like to call it, to make sure that the patients get all the appropriate management they need. Yeah, that's great. And what's what's been uh, some of the feedback from patients over the years since you've been incorporating this? You know, I tell you that, you know, I have one of my favorite quotes is um, one of my patients told me that she feels like she's the driver of the bus. And I love that. And I use it often. She's, you know, she really has actually, you know, created um, a a group that, you know, follows what they call pre-vivers. So people who have an increased risk, but are not, you know, um, who have a genetic risk, but have not actually developed cancer. She created a local group in our Annapolis area. And I think she's amazing. And she goes around and, you know, and educates people in her own right. But she feels like she's in control and she can, she can make decisions about her own healthcare and her own destiny. So they've been super positive. Yeah. I like that. I like that driving the bus. Yeah. And (laughs) you know, now that you've been doing this for some time, I mean, if, if, you know, one of your colleagues came up to you, I mean, what kind of maybe wasn't incorporating this in their practice, what kind of advice or tidbits would you uh, give them to encourage that, you know, they can do it too? Yeah. You know, I think, my biggest piece of advice is start small and start consistent because I think what happens is, you know, folks tend to get overwhelmed and they're, you know, I think we in healthcare are just, you know, especially after the recent pandemic, we just feel so overwhelmed with everything and adding Mm -hmm. any more to our plate just seems impossible. You know, I said, just start with something that you know that you're going to do every single day. Start with your well woman's you know, see every well woman that, you know, that you encounter, you make sure you do a a cancer genetic risk assessment on them. Once you get good with that, then you move on to any person that you're going to take to the operating room. If you're going to open somebody or put them under anesthesia, that's the next group. Mm -hmm. And then you start adding, you add your obstetrical patients, you add your postpartum patients. And before you know it, you're, you know, you're identifying all of your entire patients, but 
the one thing I ask them to do is make sure that you're consistent. Don't move to the next group until you know that you're doing it consistently every single time. And then that way it becomes truly a process. But figuring out what works best for your group and making sure that it's done on a routine basis. After all, ACOG says this is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good uh, pearls. And, you know, how have you seen um, um, equity over the years come into genetics risk assessment? And, and what are your thoughts around that? Well, I, I am really excited, you know, with all of the, the new changes in, you know, identifying the polygenic risk score, for example, and utilization of that in enhancing the current um, risk modeling, especially for breast cancer that we're doing. I think in the last, you know, two years, I think it's really been brought to the forefront that, you know, yes, everybody has access, but the quality of the access is not always equal. And we want to make sure that every woman, every man, every person in this country um, and everywhere else has access to the healthcare. You know, healthcare is a right. It's not a privilege. It's a right. So I'm really excited about the changes that I'm seeing um, in being able to utilize specific you know, ethnic-based um, screening tools to really identify an individual's specific risk, as opposed to a lot of the data that, you know, quite frankly, has been based on Caucasian data. We're yeah. now able to make sure that women of African descent, of Asian descent, of Hispanic descent are getting, you know, appropriate and accurate risk assessments in order to make, you know, treatment plans for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it hasn't even been until a few years ago that we've actually validated some of the commonly used models for right. risk assessment in people beyond European ancestry. So um, yeah, it's nice to actually finally have the data um, and new technologies um, to bring, um, you know, this type of uh, risk assessment for uh, women of all ancestry. So, you know, like we um, you know, have just been doing on, on the research side of my life, I've been doing a lot. <laughs> in the uh, polygenic risk score uh, Mm -hmm. world and, uh, you know, making sure that we have equitable testing now by bringing in ancestry informative markers. Um, You know, that's been a huge advancement uh, for the field. So it's nice to see it uh, diffusing in and then, uh, you know, people on the front lines of uh, taking care of patients, uh, you know, like you and your clinicians are able to uh, benefit from that. And I'm really excited, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, there, we get sometimes some pushback because, you know, not every, you know, anything that's new, people don't really always understand. But what's really exciting is I always often, you know, tell my colleagues as well as my patients that, you know, we're, as we get more information about the genetic code and we're identifying, we have improved technologies that give us more information it's really important that we utilize all of this information to make sure that we're allow, we're providing fair and equitable healthcare to all peoples. Yeah. So I love that you guys and all the work that you know you and your team have done. I you know very thankful because I'm actually seeing it make a difference on the clinical side and in, in real world. So it's great. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, no, it's it's been an adventure with uh, many people, um, both. Um, that I work with here at Miria, but also, um, you know, around the country uh, that have been helping us with this effort. So it's, uh, you know, hats off to everyone, uh, because, you know, if you hear from Dr. Stittner, her practice here, it's being used in uh, the appropriate manner and uh, patients are benefiting from it. Well, thank you, Efi, for coming on. This was uh, just so great to hear how you've incorporated genetic risk into your daily practice. I mean, the uh, teachings, um, you know, hopefully others, you know, that listen to this podcast can realize, Hey, I, you know, you know, we can do it, you know, it's, it's able to be done. I love 
um, you know, how you were, uh, you know, talking about making sure that you perfected in one aspect of your uh, practice before trying to move it into the whole practice, you know, bring in it, uh, bringing it in and through bite size um, intervals to make sure that, uh, you know, you have the highest quality and that you're able to tune up the process before expanding uh, was just great advice. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, allowing people to drive their own bus. It is my pleasure. And, you know, I'm so excited to, you know, and I encourage everybody keep identifying. This is something that really makes a difference in women's lives. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.